Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. My name is Chris. If you have your Bibles, well, before that, um, I just want to say on on Saturday, we're going to do a workshop on grief and anxiety in the morning, and then from five to seven that afternoon, we're going to have a party at um, our church plant, Incarnation, in Shambly. We are our bishop is in town. We're going to be launching them and having a big celebration in their new space. And so, if you have margin in your life and in your calendar and want to come out to a party and hear from our bishop, uh, a number of us are going to be there from the west side just to show support to our church plant in Shambly. Um, they're doing great and they're building their space is just absolutely beautiful. So I hope you'll join us uh, for that. Um, we're going to look at John nine, um, and I am really looking forward to this uh, on a very personal level. Um, the, the first half of John's gospel is my favorite uh, portion of the Bible. Um, and scholars have generally agreed that in those first nine chapters or so, nine, ten chapters, there are uh, seven signs of Jesus. There are seven uh, clear instances, miracles of Jesus that tell us uh, really important stuff about the character and nature of God, but those signs also tell us really important stuff about the character and nature of people, people just like you and me. And so today we're going to look at the sixth of seven signs. Uh, this is the healing of the man born blind. And it's a really long passage of scripture, 41 verses. I'm not going to read 41 verses because I know you all have been Twitterized and you just can't handle 41 verses. Neither can I. And I'm not even on Twitter. Uh, so I'm going to read 12. We're going to tell a little bit of the story and then I'm going to read the end of the, of the text just to kind of help us uh, enter the story versus turn our brains off as we're reading uh, 41 verses. So two things I want you to look for today. What is this, this encounter saying about the character of Jesus? Who is he? Uh, how does he engage? And what does this tell us about the character and nature of us? So this is signs are pointing in two directions. They're telling us things about the human condition and about the heart and the instinct of God. So uh, let's read and let's pray. As he went along, he saw a man who was blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he said. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging said, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed. And then I could see, where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> I just love this so much. Father, thank you for the Bible. God, thank you for the signs of Jesus. Thank you, God, that as we do our best today for the next few moments to, to look at and consider what this is saying about you, Jesus, your, your instincts, your heart, and what this is saying about us, our hearts, our instincts. We pray that you would come and meet us. We pray that you would speak to our hearts in ways that are 
real and meaningful. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we walk through the Lenten season, I, I think this is a really, really important and fitting passage. So we're going to name a few movements and then just try to understand and hold the story, but then also understand and hold what, what the Lord would say to us. So the first movement is this. A man is uh, blind from birth. I, I lost the sight in my right eye when I was seven, and so I have vague memories of what it's like to see the whole world. Uh, if you and me ever go for a walk, walk on my, my left side, not my right side. Otherwise, I just have no idea that you're there. Uh, that was exploited a lot when I was a kid and a teenager and even in college. People would get on this side and do all kinds of things, and I had no idea what's going on. Uh, this guy can't remember. Um, I have vague memories of what it was like to see a baseball coming all the way to me before I swung and missed. Uh, and then when I lost the sight of my right eye, a lot of it felt like guesswork. I would see it, and then I would not see it. This guy never had any memory of being able to see. And as we looked at last week with the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman who had had five husbands and the one that she had was not her husband, um, we recognize that when someone is less than whole in the pages of the Bible, it creates a lot of complexity, a lot of isolation. The Jews cared a great deal about purity. And, and what would happen oftentimes is that when someone was demonstrating something in their life, whether it was a lack of sight or a lack of the ability to walk or some form of moral compromise, um, people in the Jewish community would, would back up from them. And in some ways, it's just no different today, right? Like despite all of our rules and our laws about how we create accessibility and we help and all of that, there's a sense in the human soul where we kind of move back from things that uh, feel uncomfortable to us or feel less than uh, whole or less than what we hope for for ourselves. And that was happening here. The Jews had provision for this guy. Uh, this guy would have been in the place of receiving alms. He would have been positioned at a certain place in his village or town, and um, the law in its mercy provided for him to um, hold his hands open metaphorically and to receive uh, benevolent gifts from the community. It's actually a really compassionate thing, and yet there would, there would be a dynamic at play there, right? Because he was that guy who sat in that place and people felt pity and they, they met him in their pity, and yet sometimes would view him as a little bit less than or other than. So the way we know that that was at play here is the second movement in the text. The disciples say, well, whose fault is it? And rather than hearing that as a private conversation, I think it's actually important for us to understand what would have been happening. So if, if Matt is sitting right there, and that Matt is sitting right there on the front <laughs> row, um, uh, if, if, if Jesus and his friends were walking by and they were proximate to Matt and Jesus' friends say to Jesus, look at that guy, whose fault is it? Um, he, he was there, he was hearing that, that he was proximate to this conversation. And in some ways, it probably wasn't even unusual for him because it was a, a sense in which people viewed this as an object lesson learning moment. And yet here's like an actual guy sitting over there. And so what we know about this guy is that he's compromised. His eyes don't work. And because of his compromise, he experiences like social repercussions, both good ones, people providing for him, but also bad ones. He's a guy that people could talk about in front of him. And he was just meant to sit there with his hands open, hoping for benevolence, hoping for mercy. 
And one of the invitations for us always when we read the Bible is to identify with the person or persons in the text who's most vulnerable and needy. In this instance, we're meant not to identify with the disciples or with Jesus, heaven forbid, in this moment, but to identify with this man who is experiencing compromise. Now, last week, the woman was experiencing compromise. Now we see a man experiencing compromise. Someone for whom a boundary or a sense of wholeness had been transgressed, something had happened, and the disciples are doing what people have been doing throughout all the ages. They're looking at something scary, and they're saying, who did something to make this thing happen? Whose fault is it? Is it his fault? Is it his mom and dad's fault? We're going to meet his parents in a minute. They are terrible. But even in this, Jesus is like, that's not the conversation we're happening. We're not talking about whose fault it is. And I've been thinking about my own life. I, I, I think that I've experienced this in my own life, uh, both as a giver and a receiver, this kind of like wanting to measure and analyze something and go, who's, who's to blame here for what's going on? And in some ways, what the disciples were doing and what you and me tend to do when we do that is we allow like karmic thinking to enter into our Christian religion. And I just want to say karmic, karmic thinking, that's not our religion. That's another religion. Now, what we do know as Christians is that sin does have consequences attached to it. That is true. We're told in the Bible that you know, uh, the wages of sin is death, that sin puts space between us and God. We're told that um, there's like a fruit bearing or a reaping and sowing dynamic in our lives. So all of that is true. But in this moment, when the disciples look at someone who's experiencing a scary circumstance and they're trying, because this is what I do. When I measure you and try to analyze it and go, oh, I know why she's like she is. A lot of times what I'm really doing is trying to back up and put enough space between me and whatever that is so that I don't have to really confront it. So if that's just an object lesson, if Matt's just an object lesson, right? The person who experiences a divorce, the person who goes through a tragic loss, the person who goes through like sudden job upheaval, if I can just analyze them, then I can back away and I don't have to really feel it. Like in some ways the disciples like us are trying to feel safe by going, let's, let's break it down. And Jesus is just not having it. Uh, my favorite Bible scholar, N.T. Wright, he says this, we have to stop thinking of the world as a kind of moral slot machine where people put in a coin, a good act or a bad act, and get out a particular result, a reward or a punishment. That is not the essence of the good news. That is not the gospel. Jesus is not concerned in this moment with who messed up. He's concerned with bringing glory to God. He's concerned with bringing light where darkness is. He's concerned with restoring something that was lost. And you have to understand this. For this guy, it wasn't just his eyesight. His eyesight led to a diminished connection with the community. Jesus is not just concerned with whatever it is that ails us. He wants to reintegrate us into community. That's what this miracle is about. It's like a layered miracle that results in an invitation for integration. So here's what Jesus does. And again, I, I just want you to, um, Matt, you're an actor. Come, come sit beside me. <laughs> There are very few people that I put on the spot. This guy's been in movies, so he can handle this. So I want you to imagine that Matt is the blind guy. And he's, he's blind. So I want all of you to close your eyes. 
just for a moment. And this is not a Baptist, every head bowed, every eye closed moment. (laughs) So here's what I want you to imagine with your eyes closed. I want you to imagine hearing the sound of someone making spit. And we know that Jesus made enough to make mud. So there's like a noise, like there was some legit spit going on. And then I want you to imagine with your eyes closed, someone touching your face. Okay, you can open your eyes. It would have felt jarring because here's the thing that Jews didn't do. When someone had a boundary transgression and blindness, just like leprosy, it would have been viewed by people as like something got compromised. Um, There were provisions made for them, but people wouldn't go right to the thing and touch it. And most of us feel most alienated Because no one wants to go right to the thing and touch the thing that hurts the absolute most or represents the most vulnerable or compromised part of who we are. But this guy doesn't just receive alms from Jesus. Jesus gets right down in the space of alienation and isolation and he touches him. And I just want you to think about how that would feel for a minute. A lot of us in our compromise feel super alone. And, and even sometimes alone, like we feel like we deserve it. And the world treats us that way, even our friends and our partners, because there are real consequences, right, when we mess it up. But Jesus comes right into space. This is who Jesus is. The disciples are wanting to talk about him like an object lesson, and Jesus is like getting right into the space. Thanks, Matt. So after he makes mud... And rubs mud on his face. And I have no idea why he does this. It's kind of weird, frankly. The next movement is this. He says to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So here's what I want to say. If we can follow the guy, he knew how to go to the pool of Siloam because this was his place. Blind people know how to navigate places. Karen and I had a friend, friends when we lived in, in England that were blind And it was a blind couple, and it was always really interesting to go to their house because they'd never bothered turning lights on or opening curtains. And so you'd go to Phil and Tanvi's house, and it would be dark. And they could just zip around their house in the dark. And we had some friends that just thought it'd be funny to move their furniture around. We did not participate in this. (laughs) And Phil's, like, running into stuff. And thankfully, they were, like, pretty decent people, and they helped those friends, like, get things back to where they belonged. This guy would have known where to go. And he got to the pool of Siloam. And I've always, I've thought like, why? This is where knowing a little bit about the Bible is really helpful. So this miracle happens at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. And the pool of Siloam were the principal water source for the, for the Feast of Tabernacles. So what Jesus is saying to this guy is, I want you to get up still blind with mud on your face. And I want you to go to a really public place. And your restoration and your healing is going to happen there, not in private. I hate that. For me, this room has been in part my pool of Salome. Like you want to get healed privately where no one's watching. You want to get healed just in a counselor's office. You want to get healed just by doing all the, the stuff. But there's something communal. At the end of the day, his restoration had to be communal in part. So Jesus says to this guy, I want you to go still unseeing, 
having been touched by me, but still unseeing, and I want you to move up until this moment, all the initiative rests with Jesus, right? The guy's in a passive place. He's the one sitting. Jesus takes all the initiative, and now Jesus says, I'm now going to ask you to take some initiative. We tend to want to live in one world or the other. This is either all about God or it's all about me, and the truth of the matter is this story tells us that God initiates And then he invites the person to initiate. And then we'll see at the end that Jesus initiates again. So there's like a flow. But he had to walk blind with mud on his face after having been touched by Jesus. And I just want you to hold that with me for a minute. He's moving blind because Jesus said, I want you to move. And in a very real way, Jesus is inviting him to take a step of faith. There's something big happening. But what ultimately was going to happen had not happened yet. Jason, let's do it now instead of later. I I want Jason to come up. Jason's our pastoral care. Um, He he does pastoral care for us. Uh, I don't know my own title, so... What is your official title? I feel like this is a big moment. It it's is. It's like a big announcement. It is. What is your Pastoral offic- care dude. Pastoral, that's not your official title. So Jason and I were having a conversation this week um, about some areas where I, I personally, this is like a personal conversation where I personally can, can identify with like Jesus is doing something, but whatever he's really going to do hasn't hasn't happened yet. And so Jason, can you talk a little bit about what you, what you were saying to me about this space of, of, of transition in the work of God? Yeah. I think what we were getting to is this thing that I hate that insight doesn't equal healing. It feels so good to have, to make connections, to hear that podcast that just, Oh gosh, that's it. And we think that we're healed and it just doesn't happen that way. And we can get addicted to that insight. You know, we listen to more podcasts, we read more books, and it feels good to know, to make the connections. Uh, We're post-enlightenment creatures, so if we can just understand something, we can stand over it and control it. But it just doesn't work that way. Um, And yet, we do have to have insight. It does have to start there. We have to see a thing. Like the Israelites in the desert, we have to look at the snake on the stick. We have to look at the thing that's killing us. But then we have to also welcome it. Like, can you look at what's killing you? Can you look at your brokenness and actually have kindness and curiosity about it? Or do you just go to self-contempt? Because contempt is not going to bring about change. So we have to welcome it. And then we have to grieve. We have to turn our emotion into motion. We have to feel it in our body. When's the last time you wept over something? We have to feel it. And then we have to repent. We have to believe something different about who we are. We have to disavow ourselves of the lies that have been told to us or that we've absorbed. We have to begin to believe that what God says about us is most true. And we have to begin to act like that's true, to live in a way that free people live, that free men and women live. And that, as you're going to see in the story, uh, can bring war. 
can bring complication, can bring disruption. So there is even accounting of the costs in your own healing. And then finally, again, as we'll see, like you have to do this in a village with the village. Your healing has to have witness. People have to remind you of who you are. People have to help you tell your story more truly, to hold your tears, to hold you. We're meant to do this with the village. And finally, it's, it's the Holy Spirit who does the healing. We can think it's about the mud, um, but it's the Spirit. And yet, he wants us to participate. So we have to all ask that question, what's our mud? What's our mat to pick up? It's really good. Thank yeah. you, Jason. Jason's a wise man. The next thing we see here is that healing is sometimes disruptive, and I probably would just take that qualifier out if I had it to do over again. I, I think healing is disruptive, and we know that in a couple of ways through this story. So the guy walks with the mud, and he washes the mud off of his face, and his eyes are opened, and then people begin to debate whether it's even the same guy. And the reason for that is that they were used to seeing him in a certain place, doing a certain thing, acting a certain way. And when he was no longer doing that or occupying that space, people are like, is that the same guy? And then somebody's like, no, it just looks like him. And he's like, no, I am that, I, I'm that guy. So there's this, and if you've ever got out of your familiar place, uh, it's hard for people to reconcile that. It's, it's hard to adjust to new realities, and that's happening to this guy. Like he's now being, being made whole. His body has been healed. And people are having a hard time even recognizing who he is. And then it gets worse. Um, very quickly, it devolves into a theological debate. This is the part of the story that I'm going to tell you. Uh, because the miracle happened on the Sabbath. And so the, the leaders of the, of the church, the synagogue, they bring the guy in and they start to grill him. So when did this happen? It happened on the Sabbath. Well, you know, that's not, that's against the rules. And meanwhile, like no one seems to be talking about the fact that he can now see. It's more just that he's disrupted some sort of status quo. So then they tell him, you go out into the hallway and then they bring in his mom and dad. And his mom and dad are wretched. They're like, well, don't ask us, just ask him. And the reason for that is they can tell that there is something going on that's going to cost somebody something and they don't want to get kicked out of church. So they distance themselves from their child. They're like, well, ask him. He's of age. Like he, he can answer for himself. So mom and dad skulk away, not standing with their son. And then their son gets brought back in and gets thrown out of church because he can see now. And he becomes a bit snarky in the conversation. They ask him again. He's like, I've already told you. Do you want to become followers? And then they, that's it. They just said, you're full of sin. Get out. So now we have a guy who used to be disconnected and blind, disempowered, and now he is sighted. And the text kind of starts to turn here because now what we're seeing is the story started with one blind guy and a bunch of sighted people. And now we've got a bunch of blind people and one-sighted guy. They're not seeing, he's seeing. And they begin to get worked up. They throw him out. So now he can see, but he's been kicked out of the church, out of the synagogue. 
Now let's read what happens next. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Now listen to what Jesus says and think about what's just happened. Jesus said, you have now seen him. Like earlier today, he couldn't see. And now he's looking at Jesus. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. You see the reversal? Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. This is the last thing. Jesus finds the man. So again, the initiative now is back with Jesus. He finds the man and he invites him and calls him to trust and to believe. God does not simply want to remove our pain, our shame. He wants to do that and then reconnect us. Reconnect us to him and to one another. And the man went exactly from what, where Jason said. He went from insight, Jesus had touched him, to getting his sight back, to now worshiping and connecting to God in a way that had restored his whole person. We have five core commitments at this church. And the third one is to embody postures and practices that lead to the restoration of the entire person, not just our sight, not just our souls, but the whole thing that God wants to do something to the whole person. He wants to connect with the whole person. And as Jason said it, there's a process. And I've thought about this myself because I, I, I love insight. And there have been places in my own life, even recently, where I'll, you'll get an insight and think, well, is that it? That would have been like this guy saying, because he did, he, le he legitimately experienced Jesus. Like when Jesus touched him, like something happened there. But he wasn't, he wasn't, it wasn't finished. It would have been like the guy saying, well, now we're going to start like a, a club for blind people where we put mud on our faces and we, we find Jesus and we try, to, we try to recognize that something's happening, but we don't know what's happening. And that wasn't the point here. He doesn't want, God doesn't want you and me to have mud on our faces because Jesus is doing something. He wants us to know where, this, where it's all headed and it's headed toward you and me learning more about trust and about belief. And I can say from personal experience that trust is one of the hardest things for me to feel and to see and to experience. It's so hard for me to do that. And it may be for you. That's where this is going. That's where God wants to move you and me. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend a moment in quiet before we come to communion. And here's the question I want you to, to hold. What, what is this story revealing to you about Jesus? And what's it revealing to you about, about you? Where are you in this journey? I want us to hold that for a moment in silence and then we'll come together to the communion table. But first, let's just, let's just be still. Let's, let's consider what God would want us to see in this text, in this story.